You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 10th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, as the death toll surpasses 20,000 in Turkey and Syria, we examine the geopolitics of aid. Then... Everybody can see, especially the youths, can see that something is wrong. And we're saying we want to change the situation. The country cannot continue on this trajectory. And leading to nowhere. We'll look ahead to the Nigerian elections and the prospects of change for Africa's most populous country. Whilst in Peru, still no elections in the immediate future, as protests ramp up demanding a fresh poll. Plus... We learned all this from the entrancing saga of the Chinese spy balloon prompting certain sectors of America's media and politics, exactly, if you're wondering, the ones you'd expect, to go full chicken little. Andrew Muller gives us his sideways view of the week. With a look through the papers and the latest fashion news, we end the show with a preview of the Vermeer show at the Rijksmuseum with Tracy Chevalier, whose book The Girl with the Pearl Earring popularised the artist for a new generation. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Former US Vice President Mike Pence has been issued with a legal summons to testify in a criminal investigation of Donald Trump. The Brazilian president, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, has arrived in Washington, where he's expected to focus on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And the Japanese government is aiming to receive a record number of foreign visitors in 2025. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, more than 20,000 people are known to have died in the earthquakes that struck Turkey and Syria earlier this week. Rescue efforts are ongoing, aided by many countries from around the world, even those who are in dispute with Ankara. However, there is growing anger within Turkey at President Erdogan's reaction, and sadly, Damascus is not able to rally similar levels of international support. Well, I'm joined now by Arian Valea, who's the mayor of Tirana, and by Hannah Lucinda Smith, Monocle's correspondent in Istanbul. Uh, let's start with you, Arian, because you have had personal experience in a leadership role of this type of disaster. In 2019, Tirana in Albania was struck by a 6.4 magnitude earthquake. How does disaster control work after a tragedy like this? What happened in your case when you were mayor, as you are mayor of Tirana? Well, thank you, Georgina. It's a, it's a, it's a very sad situation. And it's uh, one of those things that um, you hope never happen under your watch. But, you know, they do. Uh, floods, droughts. Uh, a lot of the stuff that used to happen once every hundred years pretty much happens within a mayor's mandate, three or four years. You pretty much see it all. I think the first phase uh, is search and rescue, of course. And you try to save as many people as possible within the first week. Uh, but I think by then starts a period of grieving and most mayors are not managers, they're not CEOs, they are basically grievers-in-chief and, and comforters-in-chief. 
uh, we made sure we went to every funeral, uh, whether it was the mayor, whether it was the deputy mayor, the prime minister attended many of the group funerals, uh, because I think to comfort a nation that has been struck by such a tragedy is extremely important to grieve with people. Then starts the issue of accommodation. You know, I come from a relief background, even in my previous life. And usually, you know, when you deal with refugee crisis and such, you know, the first thought is to set up a camp, set up a big kitchen, serve thousands of people. Now, you can be a refugee in another country. You can't be a refugee in your own city. And the reason why you're staying in a tent and your neighbor is standing in his building is simply because you had a cheaper or poorly done building. So what we did is we took all the Airbnb roster, every apartment available for flat. So in the first month, we put everybody in hotels that were available. But then in the second month, until now, actually, uh, most people are living in rented homes. So they don't leave the ecosystem of kids going to the same schools, parents going to the same jobs, um, you know, visiting the same supermarkets and cafes so that the trauma does not linger with you within the same habitat. And I think it worked quite well. So as we are rebuilding, uh, people are in their homes, in their rented homes, and they move to a new house and they leave their rent. And I think it was a more dignified approach. Now, we are a poor country. We're not rich, but we saw that this worked better than Aquila or Amatrice or Potenza in next door Italy in terms of managing it with dignity rather than treating ref people like refugees in their own uh, hometown. Now, the final phase is, of course, rebuilding. And I think the phrase to build back better is extremely important. We move to Eurocode 9, which is uh, uh, taking into consideration all the climatic changes, but also uh, energy efficiency, but especially uh, duress under, under earthquakes. And I think the need to modernize and to use this, sure, it is a tragedy, but it's also an amazing opportunity to rethink urban planning and to really do high-quality public and uh, residential um, construction. Uh, Arian, thank you very much indeed. Arian Vallea is mayor of Tirana. Uh, Hannah, you've just returned from the disaster zone. What did you see there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really difficult to describe the kind of the scale of the destruction and what a wide area it's across. Um, you're talking to Turks who lived through previous earthquakes, particularly 99, uh, which was also devastating. This is the difference there was it, it was very concentrated in one place. Here there are cities over a really wide area, completely destroyed. Yesterday I was in Antakya, that's a city close to the Syrian border, um, and there is literally not a structure left standing or not severely damaged. I mean, the whole city is destroyed. People are just sleeping outside, sleeping in tents, sleeping in their cars. Um, you know, people who can get out are getting out to nearby cities. Um, but this is also the case in the city of Karaman Marash. It's also the case in several other towns. And then there are cities which have got neighborhoods and buildings which are damaged. So it's just absolutely huge. And then adding to that, um, you know, some of these places are really, really inaccessible. Roads were damaged. The roads that are working are really, really jammed with traffic. Ambulances are trying to get in. People are trying to get in to go and help rescue workers. Construction vehicles, construction companies are sending their winches and their diggers to go and you know, help with these rescue efforts. So it's, it's just really, really, the scale of the devastation is immense and the access is very difficult. It's, it's an absolutely huge uh, rescue operation. Now, we know that international aid is coming in, but how far is that influenced by geopolitics? I think, you know, there, there is an influence for sure. And, you know, it's it's quite striking. We've come across a couple of 
international teams here. We saw some Israelis at the airport when we first arrived on Monday night. They got here very quickly. We saw some Chinese teams working in the field. I know that um, British teams are working in Antakya as well. Um, but, you know, of course, all of these countries, you know, want to also show that they're working there. They're all kind of, you know, tweeting about it and, you know, filming on the scene and these kind of things. Um, you know, it is clearly uh, there's a diplomatic side to it. But I also think there's a realisation that, these kind of disasters don't respect borders. We're seeing that, you know, the fact that this is you know, a disaster not only in Turkey, but also in Syria as well. And, you know, this is a difficult region. Neighbours often don't get on. But when something like this happens, I think there is this, um, you know, realisation and acceptance that this is something that's bigger than borders and politics. Well, what's the aid situation in Syria? I mean, given the fact that the country's been in utter turmoil for the last 12 years... Yeah, so aid deliveries to Syria have been problematic for a really, really long time. The rebel-held parts in the north of the country uh, are basically only accessible either via the Turkish border or uh, through areas that are controlled by President Assad. And, you know, that's been used as a weapon by Assad repeatedly over the past 12 years. Um, there were some reports that Again, there was uh, restrictions on various aid organisations getting to those areas. Um, news from yesterday is that some aid convoys are starting to get through the Turkish border. But yeah, you know, this is this is a problem that's been going on for a really, really long time. And I think that you know the earthquake has just thrown focus onto this. But you know, it, using aid and you know access for aid workers as a weapon is unfortunately you know been a characteristic of this war in Syria right from the start. Uh, and finally, Hannah, will this tragedy affect the timing of the Turkish elections? So, I mean, this is a debate legally. Um, so, I mean, the first thing to say is that a state of emergency has been declared here in Turkey, a three-month state of emergency. Now, according to the law. That shouldn't affect the date of the elections. Um, it's uh, you know, legally speaking, it's only an act of war that can delay elections that have been announced. However, again, you know, going back to the kind of scale of this disaster, the number of people who are displaced, I, I just find it really, really difficult to imagine how an election can be effectively organised. Um, you know, by May the fourteenth, which is the date it had been set for, you know, rescue operations are going to be continuing for weeks, um, and then there's going to be the question of you know finding homes, finding places for all these people who have been made homeless. These cities full of people. So, I mean, nothing official on it yet, but I think it's going to. Uh, yeah, I certainly think it would be very, very challenging to hold that election within the next three or four months. Hannah Lucinda-Smith, thank you very much for joining us. This is The Globalist. It's 11 minutes past 8 in Abuja. That's 7.11 here in London. Now, Nigeria, Africa's most populous country, will go to the polls on the 25th of this month. The election comes at a time of worsening security, economic hardship and a currency crisis. President Mohamedou Buhari has been in office for seven years and whoever takes over will face many challenges. Well, joining me here in the studio is Deepo Faloyan, who is a journalist and the author of the excellent book, Africa is Not a Country. Deepo, many thanks for coming in. 
Let's start with this immediate problem, and that's that citizens were meant to swap old banknotes for new ones by today, but the Supreme Court blocked the government from enforcing that deadline. What's behind that? Yeah, so back in November, the government announced uh, a redesign of the currency, and the aim of that was to uh, push back against both counterfeiting as well as the hoarding of the old banknotes in people's homes. The government claims that around three trillion naira that was spent across the economy last year, only about, I think, about 500 billion naira went through the banks. And a lot of that money, about $500 billion, they say, is just being kept in people's homes. A lot of that is being kept by politicians um, who take out large chunks of cash in informal means and keep them in their homes. And the aim of introducing these new notes um, was attempt to get people to take their currency, put it into the banks and then take out um, the new Naira notes. But the government has not made these notes available to uh, a country in which most interactions are done um, informally with cash. And so now there is this rush to meet the deadline and up, and as you said, you know, the deadline is today and still there are not enough uh, notes for people um, to make simple transactions like using public transport, going to markets, buying food. Um, and, you know, people can understand the underlying reasons of introducing a new currency to certainly uh, curtail people who keep hordes of cash outside of the system informally. Um, but certainly the way in which it's been implemented uh, has been really shocking. And just adding to the chaos, uh, which is in the background of this this really very consequential election. I mean, some are saying the most influential election in a generation. It's a seismic moment for this country. Um, this is the first election since the NSARS movement where young people across the region uh, took to the streets to demand a change uh, in the way in which the country is run to an end to corruption and end to police brutality. And it's a real test of the impact of that. You know, we, we talk a lot of how uh, the average age of the uh, Nigerian population uh, is below 30. About 70% of people are under 30. And we talk about, you know, what is the real impact of that? And this election will show uh, whether there's actual change on the horizon as young people push for an end of the status quo and are pushing for a third party candidate. Mm. I mean, I think there are 18 candidates running. Of those, who are the most significant and, and what, what do they stand for? So there are, th- there are three main candidates out of the 18 who have a likely shot of winning. You have the two uh, candidates from the two traditional main parties, uh, Bola Tinubu from the ruling APC, and you have his main challenger, Atiku Abubakar, from the PDP. They don't really come with, you know, how, as we look at it, sort of a tradition of left-right um, central government, uh, both, and that's part of the frustration. You know, it, it seems like they are two clubs essentially that have been set up um, to maintain the status quo among uh, the certain elite. And then you have a, this third party candidate, a man called Peter Obi, who's running for a relatively small party called the Labour Party. And he has built his brand up as this sort of technocrat, incorruptible, frugal man. And really, it's not so much about him in person, it's, it's more about this people having this frustration with the status quo and wanting to change things and and wanting to send a message to the two traditional parties that you can't take our vote for granted so you know what people are looking at is whether this third party candidate can really make a huge impact uh, in this election and are ethnic rivalries uh, uh, playing a big part in this i think thankfully 
less and less nowadays that people simply just go out there and vote for you know the the candidate from their ethnic group. You know, they're, they're, as, as we started this uh, discussion talking about, there are real frustrations in the country, whether it comes to a cost of living crisis, fuel scarcity, uh, the inability to simply just take out your own money. Um, you know, there there are serious problems, and 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 I think thankfully one thing that the NSARS movement showed was that there was real unity across ethnic groups to come together and say, you know, we are all equally impacted by the the series of crises that that continue to occur in Nigeria. And that frustration is something that, you know, crosses ethnic divisions, religious divisions. And and there is a real attempt to say, you know, let's all come together regardless of, you know, our natural differences to, to, to push for real change in this country that will benefit everybody. Of course, terrorist kidnappings and Islamist insurgency Extreme plays a huge part. All of that. And both parties have, have been in power when, as as we've seen, a rise in insecurity across the, across the country. And so, you know, all of these factors come together to really motivate a populace that that is desperate for change. Mm. Now, you were talking about the youth, and of course, youth unemployment is a massive problem. Yes, uh, completely. And, and one of the biggest problems Nigeria is facing is a, uh, a, this sort of rise in the brain drain. You know, uh, young, incredibly talented, educated uh, Nigerians are looking to leave the country and are leaving the country in record numbers. And, and the UK, for example, is, is taking advantage of that by encouraging, you know, doctors and, and professionals to, to come to the UK and, you know, to go to Canada and other countries. And so, you know, if Nigeria cannot find a way of arresting this brain drain, then regardless of who becomes president, you know, the, you're going to go through uh, a generation uh, of, of people who are doing their best work outside of the country. And and as soon as people leave, it's incredibly difficult to get people to come back. And of course, if this all ends in chaos, we're going to see that happening even further. That's a crisis, not just for Nigeria, but also for the places where perhaps unskilled workers might go to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, but then the, the positive angle is, you know, if this, if young people are able to send a message to um, to Nigeria's uh, ruling elite, and they are able to uh, push forward with a third party candidate who can make a real difference. Then you know that really sets out a roadmap not only for the region, but youth led movements around the world should certainly turn to to Nigeria and 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 ask you know how did you do it? And I think that that can really have a positive impact around the world. I mean, I think it's forty percent of registered voters are under the age of thirty four, and yet uh, when you look at the candidates, I mean, uh, Peter Obi is sixty one. Mm. The other two are in their 70s. Yeah, you know, and and that's part of the that you know part of the frustration. It's it's they don't seem to represent um the the vast majority of Nigerians who are looking for a different vision for for their nation. You know, many of these candidates have been uh sort of, you know, roaming around the halls of power ever since uh Nigeria gained independence and you know, this moment is and as I said sort of the third party candidate is not so much about the individual but it's about say, sending a message that, you know, Nigerians won't be t- can't be taken for granted anymore. Mm. Now, Nigeria has a long history of electoral fraud. Mm-hmm. Are people concerned? They are, and they're not, because to be honest, in the last few elections, you know, Nigeria have made huge amounts of progress. You know, we've had seven elections since the end of the military rule era. And in that time, 
you know, or in the last sort of four elections in particular, we've had um, a sitting president being unseated for the first time. We've had changes in the way in which votes uh, 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 tally and in the way in which people register for votes, making it harder and harder for fraud to be carried out. So there's been a huge amount of progress um, across the last seven elections. There is always concern um, that people will exploit what is still a very young election system. Um, but there is hope that, you know, more progress will continue to be made. Mm. Uh, just looking at the regional and the international implications, uh, we've touched on that slightly, but it's very important for stability in West Africa to stem the tide of unconstitutional transfers of power. Yeah, certainly. You know, Nigeria should always see itself as a leader, as the most populous country in Africa, but certainly as a major player within the region and as a country that sees itself as a leader among the ECOWAS group of, of West African nations. And, you know, Nigeria certainly will find it incredibly hard to uh, encourage other countries to follow suit if they themselves cannot um, cannot hold elections that are free and fair and are you know, are stable. And I think that it, it certainly would send the wrong message if the uh, ruling elite make any attempts at all to disrupt the upcoming elections. Mm. Talking about ECOWAS, Nigerian troops play a really important role in peacekeeping within the region. Yeah, exactly. You know, and the part of the frustration that many Nigerians have is that that sort of authority is, is being sort of diminished by, you know, the constant uh, crises within the country. And it becomes incredibly hard for Nigerians to go, uh, for Ni the Nigerian government to go abroad and, and, and make changes and help other nations when within Nigeria itself, insecurity is at an all-time high right now. Um, and so, you know, if we want to maintain that authority in the region, we, we certainly need to, to face up to the challenges back at home and, and, to fi and to fix them. And, you know, I think for us looking forward, this is really the opportunity that many Nigerians want to take to make sure that a lot of the challenges that we're facing sort of end um, in February when the elections are carried out. And will the security situation influence voting, do you think? I think it all fits in into part of it. You know, Nigerians are frustrated, the, the, especially Nigerians in the north, um, where who have suffered most from um, attacks um, from from terrorist groups and, and kidnappings. And, you know, in, cer in certain regions, they haven't been able to send their kids to school for uh, the past year. And, and so all of that will, will play into people's minds when, when, they, go, um, when they go and vote. And, and because of these crises, you know, it, it's, you have a ruling elite that are finding it harder and harder to traditionally do what they may have done, which is to attempt to kind of, you know, bribe people to, to go out to the polls. They're finding it harder to do that because, you know, people are saying, you know, what am I going to gain from being given a bag of rice today if, you know, I can't send my kids to school tomorrow. And and so that is certainly playing a role. And it, it's, it's you know, next to the cost of living crisis um, and the, the brain drain, um, those, these are sort of the three issues that are driving voters to the polls. And can, excuse me, can people campaign fairly and freely? People are, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, that that's one thing that, that, um, that you know the Nigerian uh, political model has very much allowed is for free campaigning wherever wherever you want to campaign. Um, there haven't been any concerns that you know opposition candidates are being barred from um, you know putting up adverts in in certain cities or they're not able to hold rallies. Um, you are certainly free to to go out there and campaign um, and freely. So that that these are many of the positive changes that have happened um, over the last few elections that. Nigeria as, a, as an electoral institution, you know, certainly deserves credit for. Yeah. And, and finally, do you expect any violence around the results? Um, right now, there are no necessarily, there are no signs that there will be violence. You never know when, you know, if this is an unprecedented, 
election in which the two ruling the two major parties um, are essentially uh, kicked out of office, then, you know, there could be some instability. But the last few elections have all um, been carried out without violence. So, you know, right now there aren't any signs that there will be violence. But Nigerians are, you know, very aware that, you know, historically these things can happen. And so people will certainly take the precautions that they need to take. Deepo, thank you very much indeed. That's Deepo Faloyan, and you can hear more a more in-depth interview with Deepo uh, about his wonderful book, Africa's Not a Country, uh, uh, is a country, I beg your pardon, on Meet the Writers. Uh, that's in our archive. It's available from our website. Now, still to come on the programme. We learned all this from the entrancing saga of the Chinese spy balloon prompting certain sectors of America's media and politics, exactly, if you're wondering, the ones you'd expect, to go full chicken little. We'll hear Andrew Muller's weird and wonderful assessment of what the past seven days have taught us. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Protests are continuing in Peru. The unrest was sparked when the former president, Pedro Castillo, was ousted in early December. And demonstrators say they will continue until President Dina Bluarte, Castillo's vice president who replaced him, steps down and early elections are called. A state of emergency is now in place across much of the country. Well, Natalia Sobravia Perea is a professor of Latin American history at the University of Kent, and she joins me now. Natalia, Castillo was forced out after he attempted to temporarily suspend Congress. Yet, judging by the reaction of the people, he was hugely popular. What is it that protesters want? It wasn't just that he was popular. And let's be clear, he did attempt a coup against himself, but he wanted to close Congress and shut the judiciary. So he was ousted because he attacked the democratic system. But he was hugely popular. But not only that, people expected change and wanted change. He wasn't going to deliver change and he wasn't going to really give anybody what they wanted. But there was a feeling that he represented those in the south of Peru mainly, but of indigenous backgrounds, poor people, and they are up in arms. And they want Bluate to go. Do they have something against her personally, or are they just very angry with, with the government as a whole? Well, now, after 60 people have been killed, they do have something personal. 17 people were massacred in the city of Ayacucho in early December, as around the same number of people were killed by police forces in Puno, in Juliaca, in January, a month ago. So now it is personal. Uh, The government's called on citizens to report on acts of terrorism on social media. Can you tell us more about that? Well, Peru has a long history after having suffered the the, the Shining Path uh, 
ravaging the country in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, this is 20 years after the Truth Commission report came out, and there is many uh, unhealed hurt from that time. And the accusations that anybody who wants some kind of change in the country is a terrorist run rife. Hmm. Uh, and the social media aspect of it? Well, the social media is uh, is an important factor. This is a law that was promoted before, and in fact, the only person that has now been uh, jailed for this 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 anti-terrorism law is in fact someone who was trying to defend Fujimori and was showing on social media some uh, materials on terrorism to attack the terrorists, and this person has now been found guilty of promoting terrorism. So the law is very problematic. Mm. Now, of course, we know this has affected the economy. It's affected tourism enormously. It's also been a big impact on copper supplies, not not just uh, in Peru, but, but globally. Can you tell us more about that? Well, Peru is the second largest copper exporter producer in the world after Chile. It has their largest reserves, and the mines are in precisely the areas that are the hot spots for the um, un- unrest. So there, there, there's not been as much uh, export in copper. China is now out of their huge and long lockdown, and there's more demand. So growing demand of copper, less Um, supply, and of course the prices will go up. Mm. Uh, Natalia, is there any uh, prospect of an end to this soon? No. That is the saddest part. Congress has been sent several projects to um, have the election sooner, but they have no desire to cut their mandate short. So it doesn't seem possible. The only possibility legally, constitutionally, would be for Dina Boluarte to renounce her presidency. And then there would be an immediate call for elections within six months. That seems at this moment extremely unlikely. Yesterday, there has been a parade with an amount of military force in central and downtown Lima that has been unprecedented, but also the organizations in in, in Lima and the provinces that have been to Lima are are fighting back. Now, the, the Boluarte administration is counting on people to get tired, to simply give up. But so far, it really doesn't seem it's going that way. We've got two months of unrest and still going strong and no real solution because um, it's also th- there is no leadership uh, from those protesting that could really challenge the current administration. So there's no real proposal past a call for elections and a call for a constituent assembly. Natalia, thank you very much indeed. That's Natalia Sobravia Perea. And here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Former U.S. Vice President Mike Pence has been issued with a legal summons to testify in a criminal investigation of former President Donald Trump. The subpoena is reportedly linked to Mr. Trump's efforts to cling to office after he lost his bid for re-election in 2020 and the subsequent riot by his supporters at Capitol Hill. The Brazilian president, Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva, has arrived in Washington, where he's expected to focus on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Brazilian media reports Lula will present a proposal for a peace club in his meeting with Joe Biden today. The forum would include countries like India and China and discuss a long-term perspective and a possible solution to the conflict. 
And the Japanese government is aiming to receive a record number of foreign visitors in 2025, according to its proposed tourism plan. The ambitious goals come as the government expects a recovery in demand for international air travel and for upcoming events to be held in the country to boost visitor numbers. The draft plan is set to be approved by the cabinet next month. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now it's Friday, which means it's time for Andrew Muller's weekly dispatch of everything we know now that we didn't at the start of the week. We learned this week that the US Air Force's F-22 Raptor stealth fighter, long controversial, horrendously expensive and eventually abandoned, had at last proved its worth in air-to-air combat a mere decade or so after the last one was delivered. We learned via an engagement off the Carolina coast that the F-22 is more than a match in a cloudless sky for an undefended, slow-moving target with a diameter of around 60 metres. Make no mistake about it. As we made clear last week, if China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country, and we did. Would you like to ride? We learned all this and more besides from the entrancing saga of the Chinese spy balloon which spent much of last week adrift across the United States, prompting certain sectors of America's media and politics, exactly if you're wondering the ones you'd expect, to go full chicken little. It's China. Did it drop and disperse surveillance products powered by solar energy to allow unlimited surveillance. And the message they were trying to send is uh, what they believe internally, and that is that the United States is a once great superpower that's hollowed out, that's in decline. Has our homeland been damaged by this balloon? Is it bioweapons in that balloon? Did that balloon take off from Wuhan? We don't know anything about it. But you don't have any evidence that this no, balloon can take bioweapons. I asked a question. I mean, what, what is in the balloon? This is something that we believe the, the White House should have advised us on. They should have had a briefing to tell us what this was. I mean, back home in Kentucky, this is all anybody talks about. It does doubtless make a change from pointing at aeroplanes. We did learn, however, that there actually were arguably grounds for an amount of prudent circumspection prior to scrambling some poor pilot who will spend the rest of his career being gigglingly addressed by the call sign dirigible. And we learned this from US Secretary of Transportation and lead character in a sappy film about an idealistic schoolteacher who turns a class of incorrigible teenage gangsters into chess grandmasters or something, Pete Buttigieg. This thing was above American airspace in terms of where most of the uh, aircraft fly. And we have the most complicated national airspace in the world. This thing is larger, the, the, the metal equipment there is larger than a bus. When they did shoot it down, the debris field was about seven miles. We learned, however, that China's spy balloon was not the only bag of hot air operating in the service of a hostile foreign power. The Russian invasion of Ukraine was not unprovoked. 
We learned that Roger Waters, out of profoundly boring rock band Pink Floyd, had been invited by Russia to address a visibly bewildered UN Security Council on the subject of Russia's ongoing rampage in Ukraine, despite this making precisely as much sense as the UNSC being subjected to the views of Rick Wakeman on the peace process in Tigray, or Roger Daltrey on the ongoing upheavals in Peru, or really whichever 70s vintage musician you like on whatever current crisis you can name. Go on, give the wheel a spin. Mick Fleetwood on The Unrest in Haiti. Sure, why not? We learned subsequent to Waters' disquisition that, if we're honest, Ukraine's retaliatory derisive Pink Floyd reference game needs an amount of work. Ukraine's ambassador to the UN, Sergei Kislitsky, struck back as follows, as will now be read by Monocle24's laboured prog references desk chief, Tom Webb. How sad for his former fans to see him accepting the role of just another brick in the wall. The wall of Russian disinformation and propaganda. (coughs) Well, quite. Wouldn't open with it, etc. Especially as Comfortably Dumb was right there, as were Wish You Weren't Here, Dark Side of the Goon, and At A Push, Wine On, you tedious foil-hatted dingbat. Most importantly of all, however, we learned that the time spent in broadly similar circumstances about six months ago getting everyone to make a chorus addressing the extent to which Pink Floyd suck out loud was not, despite what certain Monocle 24 staff said at the time, wasted. Is Pink Floyd still a thing? They don't even wear that much much weight. Righto. Here in the UK, meanwhile, we learned that Liz Truss... Yay. Yay. Wow. Yay. Oh, my God. ...had been right all along. Well, I can't be Don't buy it. I'm sorry, sorry, I just don't buy it. I don't know. We learned this from no less an authority than... Liz Truss, who broke an insufficiently long silence to explain at over-generous expanse across the pages of a newspaper and in an accompanying interview that she was whisked from 10 Downing Street after only 49 days, not due to her own hubris or ineptitude, but thanks to the furtive machinations of a sinister left-wing conspiracy, including such noted sinister left-wing conspirators as the International Monetary Fund, the Bank of England and the Parliamentary Conservative Party. We learned that, though for most of us, getting thrown out of a terrace house after seven weeks of chaos is something we get out of our system when we're students and wish never to speak of again, Truss is neither daunted nor repentant, and at any rate, everything was everybody else's fault. The political support I had during the my time in number 10 It wasn't enough to achieve the type of bold reforms I was looking to achieve. We also learned circa my time in number 10 there of a new world record for heaviest lifting ever done by a subclause. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Moore.
Thank you to Andrew. This is The Globalist. Just coming up to 8.39 in Zurich, 7.39 here in London. And we'll continue with today's newspapers. Joining me from our Zurich studio is Alexandra Terzio, who's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a contributing editor at the New York Sun. Alexandra, many thanks for coming into our, our lovely studio there uh, on Dufferstrasse. Uh, let's start talking about the Berlin elections. Uh, tell us, because this is a rather unprecedented event in Germany's democratic history. It is. Good morning, Georgina. So Berliners are heading to the polls this Sunday for a repeat of the botched September 2021 state and municipal elections that were actually annulled by Germany's constitutional court last November. Um, Back in September of 2021, delays at the polls forced people to stay in lines. Many voting stations ran out of papers. Ballots even had the wrong candidates. Um, it It was really quite a mess, so much so that Germany's constitutional court ruled that about 60% of seats in Berlin's state parliament were affected by the problems, though apparently there was no wrongdoing or election fraud. But as you've said, this is really quite unprecedented. Never before has an election in Germany been so badly botched that it warranted a repeat. Um, And for some, this has started to call into question the credibility of Germany's democratic institutions. What makes this even more interesting is that it's not fully clear that the vote will, in fact, go ahead. There have been several attempts to postpone it, all have so far been dismissed by the constitutional court. But the court has also deferred making a final decision. So while it's unlikely, it is still possible um, that this election could be postponed in the 11th hour. Um, Should it go ahead, though, the outcome will not affect federal election results. So Chancellor Schultz can keep his day job, but it could potentially restructure the balance of power in Germany's Bundeset. In 2021, the Social Democratic Party emerged as the largest in the Berlin elections, with the Greens narrowly surpassing the Christian Democratic Union to become the second largest. It so far looks that that would be the case this time around, um, though, as we know, with elections, anything is anything is possible. Absolutely. Moving on now to the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, and he's in Africa continuing his charm offensive. He is. And this is actually his second visit to the continent in, in the last 10 days, his third in about the last six months. When he passed through last month, Mr. Lavrov was in South Africa, Angola, Eritrea. This time, um, he's been visiting Mali, Sudan and Mauritania. And in each of these countries, the message is more or less the same. Moscow is with you. Moscow supports you in your struggle against jihadism, a message that's especially relevant in West Africa and the Sahel. Um, and Russia will help you liberate yourselves from the shackles of Western imperialism. So goes the the narrative from Moscow. Like China, to some extent, Russia is quite skilled at using memory diplomacy in Africa, recalling kind of positive memories of the past, for instance, of then Soviet support for various African liberation struggles, and using these positive memories to boost its influence and interest in the region. And it has, over the years, actually enjoyed considerable success. And using this kind of memory diplomacy, it has been able to expand its sphere of influence in Africa rather significantly. A great deal of the focus tends to be on the military support um, that Russia has been extending. There are discussions now about a potential military base in Sudan. But there's also um, a distinct cultural element to this that factors in. In the Central African Republic, for instance, Russia is now a mandatory language for 
all um, university students. In Sudan, RT Arabic, which is Moscow's Arabic language news channel, is the second most popular news source um, after Al Jazeera. So we see Russia making military inroads, but also playing a longer game, kind of shaping the hearts and minds of, of African populations. And, and that's what Mr. Lavrov has been up to um, this week. Let's uh, follow up with a longer game or a shorter game. I'm not actually sure how long uh, a Super Bowl <laughs> Sunday lasts. <laughs> well, it, it depends who you ask, really. <laughs> <laughs> Interminable, I suspect, if it's me. <laughs> it could uh, be. <laughs> but it is Super Bowl Sunday in America this weekend, and the Wall Street Journal uh, has a great take on game day foods. It does. You know, even if you're not a fan of professional American football, and I count myself, I don't know if I can say this publicly, one who is not such a fan, um, the game does have a way of bringing people together. It's a fun excuse to eat, drink, meet Mary. It's almost like another Thanksgiving. Um, and Super Bowl foods are actually equally, if not more important than the game itself. Um, and the Wall Street Journal, as you said, has this great piece about the ways in which various immigrant communities in the U.S. have taken game day foods like pizza, like nachos, for instance and made them their own, also highlighting how what have become traditional game day foods actually reflect the richness of America's immigrant heritage. So guacamole, for instance, which made its way to the U.S. from Mexico, of course, um, it has actually also made Super Bowl Sunday the biggest sales opportunity of the year for Mexican avocado growers, little known fact. Um, You know, hummus came from the Middle East and so on. Um, The piece, it was written up by Pervez Shalvali. I hope I'm getting his name right. And it also actually has some great recipes at the end. Um, so even if you're not so much interested in in the game, uh, there's there's something there for everybody that can you know you can cook up storm this weekend. I would like to give you a, a final clucking fact about uh, chicken and uh, eating uh, at the Super Bowl. <laughs> uh, according to the National Chicken Council's annual chicken wing survey, 1.5 billion chicken wings will be eaten this weekend. That's quite a number. Absolutely. <laughs> I'd call it almost excellent. Alexandra, <laughs> sorry, but thank you. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much, Virginia. Ex- Alexandra Tizia of the Atlantic Council, and this is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's time to talk fashion news now with luxury brand consultant, content strategist, editor and writer Rebecca Tay. Good morning to you, Rebecca. Hello, Georgina. Uh, Now, the first signs of a new Burberry under Daniel Lee are here. Tell us more. Yeah, that's right. So Daniel Lee left Bottega Veneta, the you know historic Italian house, in 2021, and then he was um, quite quickly announced to be joining Burberry. Um, but it's been sort of silent since then, until now. So they're launching their first collection for Burberry. Um, sorry, he's showing his first collection for Burberry at London Fashion Week in a few weeks. Um, but they've re- released a new logo. They've released their first campaign. So this is sort of the first glimpse of the new Burberry under Daniel Lee that we're seeing. And is it impressive? 
anyways, I think people are quite happy about seeing the return of what's called the equestrian knight design. So for about five years, we didn't see this sort of horse logo, which has um, a kind of a rider holding a big uh, kind of a big flag. Um, and it's sort of Burberry's historic icon. Um, and it was first developed actually in uh, 1901, so more than 100 years ago. Um, and it disappeared for about five years when the brand was under Ricardo Tichy, and he's brought that back. He's kind of stamped it all over the campaign. He's also released a new logo, which is a little bit more elegant. It's, um, it has serifs on the font, so it's got the sort of little flicks on it. It's a bit, of a, it's a bit more of an elegant font, basically. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, look now at the uh, collaboration between Nike and Tiffany. It's not getting great reviews. Yeah, this is an interesting one. So it's obviously two mega brands, Nike, obviously, we're all very familiar with and Tiffany. I think people are sort of surprised, I think, at the collaboration, first of all, um, but then also what they've created. So um, they've created a shoe, which is the Air Force One, which is one of Nike's most famous shoes. Um, but it's a black suede version, which I think a lot of sneakerheads would say that it's not the most um, popular version of the Air Force One. Um, and then it just has a blue swoosh. So the kind of signature Tiffany Robin's Egg Blue um, is has turned the Nike swoosh that color. Um, I think it's just a bit of a disappointing shoe, I think is the main criticism, but then also um, just a lot of criticism around kind of the price point, whether it's sort of selling out. There's been a lot of efforts, I think, over the last few years of Tiffany to try and kind of show that it's relevant to younger consumers. Um, and I think this is, you know, criticism of this latest collaboration sort of falls in the vein of trying too hard, mm. I think. And finally, a quick look at Hermes and this uh, uh, lawsuit that, that applies to uh, tech. Yeah, this is an interesting one. So we've, you know, we've seen meta in the, we've seen sort of NFTs and things like this come out in the world of art. Um, and basically an artist who goes under the name uh, Mason Rothschild created a bunch of um, NFTs that were basically Hermes Birkin bags. So their most iconic, very expensive bag. Um, they were digital reproductions of the bag, but then kind of with little sort of quirky um, things attached to it. So there was a mature fetus attached sort of inside the bag. Um, and then very quickly, I think there was lots of iterations that came up. So there was a Birkin with shaggy green fur, like the Grinch. There was Birkins with sort of smiley emoji. And yeah, of course, Hermes through the artist. Um, and then the, the court actually said that, yes, the lawsuit would hold um, water. So basically saying that, yes, even though it's all digital, they did infringe on the copyright or the trademark, sorry, that Hermes has in its Birkin. So it's quite an interesting one. Very interesting in terms of kind of, you know, blending technology and NFTs um, with an old kind of historic fashion house, I think. Absolutely. Rebecca, thank you so much. That's Rebecca Tay. And this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. exhibition opens at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam today. This is the biggest ever exhibition devoted exclusively to the Dutch Master of Light, with a total of 28 paintings from countries all over the world on display, including the much-loved Girl with a Pearl Earring. One of the reasons this painting is so revered, even by those with little knowledge of art, is because of Tracy Chevalier. Her best-selling novel by the same title, which came out in 1998, is also a play, a radio dramatisation, a film star starring Scarlett Johansson and even an opera. 
Now, one of Tracy's life goals has been to see every one of Vermeer's paintings in the flesh, so to speak, which she has achieved. And she's just returned from a preview of the Rijksmuseum show in Amsterdam. She joins me in the studio now. Good morning to you, Tracy. Hi, good to be here. Uh, what inspired your love of the girl with the pearl earring? Uh, I, I saw a copy of the painting in my sister's apartment many years ago when I was 19, and I fell in love with the color and the light, first of all, because the blue and the yellow of her scarf, the gorgeous light on her face. But what kept me with the painting all those years was wondering what she was thinking as she looked out at us. What was, was she happy or sad? Something as basic as that. I really wasn't sure because sometimes she looks happy and sometimes she looks a little bit tragic. And I thought, what's the story behind her, her look? Mm. And what's the story behind Vermeer? Little is known about him, but you created a whole inner life. Who is he to you? To me, he's a painter who has had to uh, hive off his very busy family life, 17th century Delft, uh, 11 children, huge household, a lot of debt he ran into. And uh, in order to paint incredibly beautiful, tranquil, calm paintings, he must have had to compartmentalize his work life from his home life, even though he worked in his house. So all of the paintings that you can think of that are Vermeer's often feature one woman in a corner doing a domestic task, whether it's pouring milk or putting on a necklace or writing a letter. She's often on her own, bathed in light, and I thought, how did he manage to create such calm and tranquil paintings? Well, he was, in a way, quite ruthless in order to do that, saying, nobody can come into the studio when I'm working, oh, except the maid to clean. And mm -hmm. that's what gets the girl who I've decided is a, is a servant in the household, though we don't really know who she is. Yeah. Uh, that's what I base the story on. And you call her Greet in, in your, in your yeah. book. Uh, well, how did it feel to be reunited with her? <laughs> on the wall, to see it, that painting again, but in real life. It's always wonderful to see her in real life, but it was even more wonderful to see her among 27 other paintings. Um, this is never going to happen again where you get that many Vermeer paintings in one one show. And actually, it's not very many. When you think about when you go around exhibitions, usually a big retrospective of a of Rembrandt or Cezanne or Picasso there are hundreds of works to choose from, and usually an, an exhibition is going to have 100 paintings, or at least. This has 28. And um, it means that the, they've spread the paintings out, so there's tons of space around everything. And everybody in the room just quieted down and calmed down and looked at the paintings for longer. And what by the time I got to Girl the Pearl Earring, who has her own whole wall... I just stood in front of her and I thought, oh, she is gorgeous, and so are all these other paintings. It was almost like, it's almost like if you have a friend who you've only ever met outside of their family, and then they, then they say, oh, come over for dinner, you can meet my parents and my sister and my cousins, and you go and you think, oh, this is what she's like amongst her family. And it, it, it slotted Girl with a Pearl Earring in so that she became not just my favorite painting, but actually... Um, uh, a, a, my favorite, uh, a painting among my favorite 
of all of Vermeer. And and I think it really, just having, um, going back and forth between the paintings, looking at things going, oh, look, she's wearing a yellow skirt that has a little red ribbon. Oh, it's over there, too. Oh, this painting works really well because it's small. This one, not so much because it's big. That's another thing. And in, in seeing them in person instead of in a, in a, in, in a book, in a book, everything's the same size, or online, everything's the same size. Here you go, wow, that painting's massive, or oh, the lace maker from the Louvre, it's the tiniest painting. So the you, you get a sense of um, perspective and, and of size. It really um, is just wonderful. I, I don't think I'll ever forget that that show. He is called, Vermeer is called the Master of Light, and it's thought that he may have been an early user of Camera Obscura. Yeah. When you look at uh, the first or the second room has his early paintings and they're pretty standard genre paintings, religious paintings, large. And then you think, okay, he's learning how to he's learning how to paint here. And then you walk into the next room and there is this and the the room after that there's the milkmaid, which is very well known. And also girl reading a letter in an open window. And they are both smaller. And suddenly the the light is condensed. The colors are more intense and also, very importantly, they seem more distant from us. There's often stuff in front of the subject. So a woman will be reading a letter and there's a, there's a table separating us from her or, um, or a, a carpet or a, a, sometimes there's even a curtain that's been pulled back. And it's very theatrical. It feels like they are doing something on their own, domestic, very calm, quiet, and we're getting to peek in at them. We're being held back, and I think the camera obscura might well have condensed all those colors and light, but also made there be a little distance between us and them, or the, the subject, and it makes it much more mysterious. It makes you just, you look at it and you think, please look at me, turn around and look at me, but no, she's always going to be looking at that letter. Quite, quite extraordinary. I mean, you've been to, I think, almost every significant Vermeer show ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did this compare? Oh, it's streets ahead. And I think um, the curators did a wonderful job setting the space, um, making the, the colors they chose for the walls, the curtains they had hanging, what, what paintings they grouped with other paintings. It's all very subtly done. And most importantly, as I said before, all the space around each painting really gives you a chance to look at it. And you walk into the room and those paintings glow from the walls. It is really spectacular. Mm. Your sort of single-handedly made Girl with a Pearl Earring uh, worldwide, popular worldwide. Uh, I mean, how does that feel? Because, I mean, yes, it was a, a loved painting, but suddenly the, the, uh, the spotlight was on it because of your work. Yeah, I, I had no idea that was going to happen. So um, I feel responsible. But luckily, I think what's important to me is when I readers write to me and say, you know, I never looked at art in that way before, and now I'm going to start looking more deeply. And that, to me, is just the best compliment I can have, is, is to help people without sounding patronizing about it. Sometimes you go into a gallery and you just walk around a room and think, oh, nothing sings. And I'm just saying, slow down, think about what's going on behind the painting. Think about what you're seeing and what you're feeling 
give yourself time to look at it and think and um, and don't expect to have a relationship with every single painting in the room. Just choose one that sings to you for whatever reason. And those, um, I, I feel like that has what has brought Girl of the Pearl Earring to, to the fore because people can can look at her and actually start to think about not only how Vermeer painted her, but what is behind that look. And, of course, that inspired, as, as we were saying, even operas. I mean, yeah. there's so much <laughs> uh, in your writing and in that painting that is there for us to, to explore. Yeah, yeah. The opera was last year in Zurich, and that was really something. That It's amazing. Like, you know, I took a painting and made a book out of it, and now a book has been made into an opera. And we steal and borrow um, from one another all the time, and that's as it should be. Tracy Chevalier, author of The Girl with the Pearl Earring. Thank you very much indeed. You can hear a much longer interview with Tracy talking about her life and work in the archives of Meet the Writers on our website. And her dazzling new book is A Single Thread, which is out now. And we're out now too. That's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Laura Kramer, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Emma Searle. Our researchers, Andre Nikolai Pamentuan and our studio manager, Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and the briefing is live at midday in, on, uh, in London. Uh, the Globalist returns at the same time on Monday. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Music.